Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 75, week 75, volume 75, number fucking 75. Hey, going, guys? How's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Andy from A Plea for Purging, and that will be coming up later in the show. So at the start of the show, we're normally kicking things off with a bit of feedback, questions, anything like that, and there's not been a lot of it this week, so I wanted to give a special shout out and mention to some regular listeners and to some people who are out there giving us great feedback, great content, and are also engaged in what we're doing. When I hear from any of you guys through Facebook, Instagram, email, whatever it is, it means a lot. The feedback and knowing that you're enjoying what we're doing is invaluable. And when I'm having a tough week with the show, getting that kind of stuff from you guys means a lot. So I've got to give a shout out to Strong Zero through Instagram. Thank you so much, dude. Look forward to chatting soon. Dwayne in Tassie, I know you're always listening, brother. Thank you so much. Joshua, you fucking legend. You're always tuning in, always giving us great feedback. Love your work as always, brother. Adam, thank you for everything you say. Thank you for everything you contribute through Facebook. Means a lot, dude. Rob and Paul, thank you for getting in touch frequently about some things and some ideas and some guests. Thank you so much, guys. Robert as well, thank you for getting in touch through Facebook. Mark, through Instagram, shout out to you, brother, all the way in the Philippines. Thank you, brother. And lastly, big shout out to Alex as well, through everything you're engaging with, whether it's a podcast or our news pieces. We notice it. We appreciate it. Thank you, dude. So that was just a simple little shout out. There are so many of you that are tuning in that are engaging. So if I missed you, it's not intentional. They were just a few that I could get off quick glance. Thank you to everyone I mentioned. Thank you to everyone else and anyone else that's tuning in regularly, listening to the podcast, downloading the podcast, sharing the podcast. Thank you to everyone that gets into the news pieces we put up. Thank you, guys. It means a lot. It means so, so very fucking much to me that we have such a rabid, loyal fan base developing. Thank you, guys. You're all a vital part of the Mosh Zone community. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. Last thing I wanted to cover at the start of the show is the Spotify playlists we have going on. Guys, I know quite a few of you listen to this through Spotify, so we've got a few playlists going, and we'd love you guys to follow those and engage with those. So we've got the Mosh Zone guest list. This is all tracks that are updated frequently from all of our guests on the show. We've got the Mosh Zone Cranked. These are all the latest singles or music videos. All of this kind of stuff is on that playlist. And the last playlist we've got is called the Mosh Zone Best of 2K19. So this is all the best EPs, best albums, the best stuff that's currently being released through this year you'll find on that playlist. So as always, guys, get in touch through email, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Also, don't forget, spread the word. Tell someone about the show, whether it's your nan, your neighbor, the guy down at the petrol station. Help us spread the Mosh Zone community. Enough of the ramblings, enough of the jibber-jabber. Let's get into the part of the show you're all tuned into for 
This week's guest is Andy from A Plea for Purging. I am a massive fucking fan of this band, and one of those bands I think were heavily underrated and quite often missed from the early to mid-2000s. It was a great opportunity to get Andy on the show to discuss his upbringings, discuss the ins and outs of the band, and I'm so glad we got it done. Thank you so very, very, very much, Andy, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. That chat with Andy is coming up now. So I always start off with, in some ways, what might sound like a simple one, and it's kind of not necessarily a heavy band, but do you remember a band that kind of you heard as a kid or when you were growing up, and then that band became like your everything in music sense? For sure. Uh, I feel like my age range, I'm 37 so this might be a generic uh, reference, but Nirvana Ooh. really was that band for me. You know, when I was getting like 12, 13 years old, uh, Nirvana was coming out. You know, I mean, they were around a few years before I, I heard them, you know, because I grew up in a small little town that uh, didn't have much in the ways of learning about music other than MTV, you know. But, um, yeah, Nirvana was that band for me. Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and anything in that grunge uh, era, era um, the stuff that came out of Seattle, all that stuff was really real to me and important to me because I just I grew up super poor, grew up fat, uh, didn't have, like, an identity or too many friends, you know, when I was, like, really young and it was my middle school years that um i started like actually getting into music and finding some sort of identity in that so those kind of bands that uh sang about some stuff that i was going through you know as a poor kid and uh that's the stuff i gravitated to and i got into music off of that stuff so i mean obviously you know you were saying life was a bit difficult at that time so was it apart from the feeling of identity was it kind of the feeling of you belonged somewhere with people that were going through the same crap that you were going through for sure yeah I mean as a kid um especially in the 90s things are a little bit more um acceptable to talk about now or people are um I don't know. It's it's more PC to talk about your feelings, I guess, and the mm. things that are going on now as opposed to being a kid in the 90s. But, yeah, you know, you didn't have anybody to talk to other than your parents, you know? Um, so you can't really talk to your parents about the the reality of being a poor kid in school and getting made fun of and those kind of things. I, it was really taboo to grow up uh, in poverty, which we were, man. I, I can't stress how broke we were as a, when I was a kid. But um, I don't know. Latching on to music and hearing other people talk about their issues and their problems, whether uh, that be um, you know, stuff that was even far beyond me as a 13-year-old kid when – Kurt Cobain was talking about stuff I'd never even experienced, you know, but just hearing someone be vulnerable 
in their uh, music like that is what showed me that there were other people with hardships able to talk about it and able to, um, you know, share that with you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the same. I'm I'm only a year younger. I'm 36, and I I remember the same in the 90s. It was, you know, nobody said that they were struggling. Um, whether it was with their um, financial status, whether it was you know with their emotions, um, whatever it was, it wasn't spoken about. It was you know leave it under the rug kind of thing. Um, and grunge obviously was the start of. No, it was always there, the expression of that stuff. But I think grunge started to make it a bit more mainstream. So you're obviously getting into the grunge stuff around, you know, your early teenage years. So what was the then next step for you with music? Did you then just latch onto music and become obsessed with it? Or did it slowly just grow your obsession? Yeah, for sure. Uh, around that same time, I like... Uh, started playing drums in the marching band in school. Um, so, you know, I got a snare drum and was rat-a-tat-tatting on that thing. And then slowly my mom was able to, like, then buy me a set of hi-hats. And I didn't have a drum set, but I had a snare drum and a hi-hat. And I would um, kick with my foot the snare drum case that the snare drum came in and, like, just taught myself how to play drums uh to nirvana records and to smashing pumpkins and those kind of bands and then um like i got a guitar that had no strings on it like a kid stole my bicycle in this trailer park that we were living in and uh sold it off to somebody else and basically his mom was like you can have anything that my son owns (laughs) to you know, repay you for this. Uh, and he had like this old broken guitar that didn't have any strings on it. And I just thought that was so cool that this was my first chance to get a guitar. So I had this guitar that didn't even have strings on it, but I would like stand in front of the TV and pretend to play guitar to, <laughs> Love it. uh, you know, it smells like teen spirit or whatever. And, and then, you know, just from there, I just kept diving into any band that I could find, whether it be, you know, you look through the thanks on a band CD and see who they were thanking or stay up real late and watch 120 minutes on MTV and uh, just kept finding more and more stuff that was out there that wasn't uh, really the mainstream, you know, and I had a sister that was like six years older than me. So she moved out of her house pretty early and I used to go over to her place and she had this huge stereo and i would just listen to all kinds of stuff like jane's addiction and she got into a metal phase for a while so she was into uh megadeth and uh then stuff like grateful dead and there was just all these different um styles that she went through before me so it was cool for her to just have this huge tape and cd collection that i could go through and just you know, rummage through and find out what made sense to me and what didn't. And that was the beginning, you know, of just soaking myself into nothing but music, you know, playing in band in school. And then when I got home from school, listening to every bit of music I could find. So, I mean, you, am I right in thinking that you 
you grew up in the Tennessee area, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in a town called Paris, Tennessee, which is uh, right in the middle of Nashville and Memphis. So you're about two hours to Nashville and two hours to Memphis. So, I mean, the kind of music you're getting into um, is a bit different than that area is quite renowned for. Um, what What's it like for you? You know, obviously school was a bit of a segregation for you, so... Um, from what you were saying earlier that, you know, there wasn't a lot at school for you, you know, friends and everything. So music was your thing, your escape. But what was it like going going around in Tennessee with your family and with the environment? Was was music that you were into allowed and accepted or was it seen a bit outlandish and weird? It was definitely strange, you know. Um, the... The town I was born in, uh, Paris, had about 10,000 people. Then when in my junior high years, we moved even farther out of town to a smaller town called Henry that had 500 people in the population Whoa. when I lived there. So, um, you know, and that was nothing but uh, there was a lumber yard and some farmland. And so you can imagine stereotypical southern you know, Southeastern America, which is rednecks and cowboy music and Wrangler jeans. Uh, so I definitely stuck out. There were some other kids that were listening to, you know, Pantera and Metallica and, and Megadeth and those kind of things and um, kind of got along with some of those kids. But I kept diving deeper into the things that were uh, less mainstream than that, you know, so I started getting into punk and metal and hardcore, uh, you know, when I was probably about 15 or so. And the only way to find that stuff, cause there's no internet is like I said, just, um, researching stuff on late night MTV or, you know, other bands records and stuff. And then I had a buddy, his name was Park that just, always seemed to get music before me and he was the guy that would just burn me cds of a bunch of different um bands you know basically what a playlist is now but that's where i i learned a, a lot about music was through that dude to be honest so what was it like for you you know going to school with this passion for music because you know anyone that kind of is in those years of high school and the last you know going into being 18 kind of things music as a career is not it's not not really you know no one says hey yeah go for it be in a band you know chase this um everyone's telling you you need a career you need to buckle down and have a nine to five job so what was going on for you at high school in the last few years were you focusing on getting a job uh, of some sorts or were you always in the back of your head thinking you know the only thing I really want to do is music uh the first I first started playing music and playing in bands at like 15 so that was always a fun hobby you know but mm -hmm. like growing up in a super small town you don't even think that that's a reality that you could go and make a career out of playing music. That's just, you know, there's this whole nother world, this whole nother level that I could never reach. So that wasn't even like a thought in my head that I could 
make any kind of career out of it. But yeah, I mean, that was all I cared about was playing music with my friends. And we started, you know, it's probably in 10 different bands in like five years trying to, trying to figure it out, you know, through high school and playing different kinds of music and getting heavier and heavier. But, um, like I said, I was in marching band and when I got into, it was like 10th grade, I failed out of a bunch of classes because all I cared about was playing in band, playing outside of, you know, playing music outside of school in my bands. And then I kind of like the first time I ever smoked weed was like in 10th grade and, uh, got really into that for a minute. So I, I, anyway, my studies failed because of it and I got really, uh, bad grades and flunked out of four classes. So like the rest of my high school career was focused on rebuilding those grades because there was a little bit of me that thought about going to college. Um, so I was trying to work my way out of that hole and got all my grades up and all that. And actually was starting to apply to some colleges when I was a senior, but at the same time, I'm playing music with all my friends and my bands are, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say successful at all, but, uh, just success is happiness and mm -hmm. whatever, like makes you happy, not, you know, financial really. And I was just finding, I was getting so much more fruit from spending time with my friends playing music and playing shows and, uh, making new friends because of it. Cause you know, like I said, I started out without any, any friends and then I got into music and I started making friends and the, and that was the glue that brought me together with other people was uh, music. And so all these relationships are growing because of this thing. And anyway, I, at that point, you know, in my late high school years, I'm like able to start going to shows now. And I'm driving to Nashville every weekend and seeing shows there and driving to Memphis every weekend and seeing shows there. And then there comes that reality that you're talking about of a career in music is I didn't really think of it as a career, but I saw these bands that were in 15 passenger vans with a trailer on the back and there's five or six of them in a van and they're traveling America playing music with each other. And, you know, the, I was just like, man, if you can just make enough money to get to the next city, it's worth it to me. Cause you're just hanging out and you're having a good time. And so at that point, when I graduated at, at 18, I thought I got to give this a shot. I got to try to keep doing this thing and I can try to go to college sometime down the road, if that makes sense. Um, so that was, that was the plan. I graduated high school and I just started moving from band to band to band until it made sense until I finally started a band that, uh, did something you know something worth mentioning i guess so i mean those those early bands i know that before you joined a plea for purging that the band we you were in am i right in remembering it was called with blood comes beauty yeah correct okay. so those early bands you know you, you mentioned you know that you're in the high school band doing drumming stuff um you've gained this guitar so you're obviously trying to learn guitar as well so early band wise 
Um, were you ever thinking of being a vocalist, like, or is that something that just over time with each band that you slotted into that position? Uh, it just kind of happened. I started off playing drums and then what's crazy is uh, like 15 or 16 years old and like the late nineties, I thought I'd gotten so good that I could never be any better, which is laughable now (laughs) because like, if you look at a 15 year old kid on YouTube, that is shredding, that is killing it. I couldn't do anything like that. I thought I was, but I thought I'd gotten so good that I was bored with it. So then I, then I started playing guitar and then I never really got great at guitar. You know, I could write some songs and play some riffs and stuff. But I mean, there, like I said, there's kids today in 2019 that can pick up a guitar as a 13 year old and just slay circles around me. But I, I left drums for guitar and was playing guitar in some bands. And then me and a couple friends just wanted to try to start playing heavier music than the band we were in you know we were in like just kind of a pop punk rock band kind of thing um and we wanted to start being heavier and got really into like post hardcore and melodic hardcore bands like beloved and you know that sing and scream and so anyway it just made sense that me i was playing guitar and our bass player uh the my buddy Park, who I was saying, got me into a lot of heavy stuff. Me and him and a buddy Matthew were playing, and it we just didn't have a vocalist. So I would do all the screaming parts while I was playing guitar. And my buddy Park, who could sing better than me, could sing, you know? And that's kind of how it happened, is I just started screaming while playing and moved, you know, after that band, the next band we just didn't have a vocalist and I had to be the vocalist again. And it wasn't something that I like started out to do because I was pretty introverted and you got to be, you know, if you're going to be in the front, you're going to have a mic in your hand. You got to really be able to put it on for the crowd. And I wasn't that guy in the beginning for sure. Uh, But it's just something that I fell into, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's, that's quite interesting because when you look over, a plea for purging's career when that was going on um from the outside looking in you wouldn't know you're an introvert you know you're you know you're very much out there fun jovial a lot of tongue-in-cheek going on you seem to really you know develop into that position how did you develop with your vocals was it something that it was trial and error because we're talking about back in the day when you know, looking up YouTube wasn't really a thing yet, hadn't really developed. Um, so learning things would have probably, I'm assuming, had been through just screaming into a mic and figuring out what felt good and sounded good. Yeah, I had no clue. It, uh, people today talk about uh, technique and screaming, and I know nothing about that. I just <laughs> started screaming as loud as possible, as loud as I could scream out, out of my throat was all that mattered and figure out how to do that long enough to where it doesn't hurt anymore and that I could still talk after a show. And in the beginning, I, when I was in with blood and some of those earlier bands, I had way more of a, um, 
carcass, Zayo kind Ooh. of, you know, that raspy, high pitch, like yelp scream. Yeah. yeah, whatever that is, um, which I loved. That's the stuff that I loved when I was young. Um, so that's the vocal style I had in the beginning. And then I didn't, I wasn't trying to accomplish that. That's just what I listened to. So that's how it came out. And after with blood ended, I didn't scream for two or three years. I like play guitar in a couple bands around town, uh, for fun. But when plea asked me to join their band, they knew me from that style of vocals and what's funny is when I joined their band, somehow I lost that thing <laughs> between like with blood ending and me joining plea. And I had no clue how to get it back. And what came out and plea was more of just like a, I don't want to say tough, but you know, that whole just mid range, more of a hardcore vocal really yeah. than, than metal. That, that that that's interesting that you know what you had and what you were getting used to suddenly you know disappears and it's like no 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 we're 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 now going to sound different because um, yeah your vocals through plea were you know guttural low tough you know throaty you know real heavy stuff um, a question I need to ask with plea before I get too much further into the plea stuff was. Is this right or wrong that you guys were a Christian band? Like, were you... I know you were all um, faith believers, um, I think you said in some interviews, down the career, but when the band you joined, were you guys saying we're a Christian band or were you just saying, hey, we play music, but we all just happen to have this belief? Uh, yeah, we were definitely claiming to be a Christian band. Uh, they were a Christian band before I joined. Um you know, that's, we didn't talk about this much in the beginning, but like in my teenage years, I came to Christianity. And so that most of my bands that I was doing things in, uh, from teenage years all the way up to plea were some sort of faith based band. Um, so yeah, we started out for sure claiming to be a Christian band signed to face down, which is a Christian label. And, um, through the years that changed what those terms meant to us personally and professionally. Um, but there are a lot of, a lot of bands that will deny that thing and deny, you know, there, there's this weird thing now where it's like uh, taboo to say mm. you were ever in a Christian band. Um, so I don't have any problem in admitting that. Yes, we said those things and believed it and were pushing for, uh, one goal in the beginning and those, those things changed throughout the years. Um, yeah, it always, is, it is weird that, ahead. that, that time, uh, when plea were really, you know, getting around from 2007 onwards, it was a time when a lot of faith-based bands were going around. It wasn't taboo, which it is now, which is really weird how a shift of 10 years can really change the landscape in heavy music. But, it was kind of going around, but you guys obviously were fine with admitting that this is who we are, but I think not, not a lot of people then took on with it. I think you were one of those few bands that, you know, it wasn't obvious. You weren't a four today, if that makes sense. For sure. Yeah, I mean, everybody had their different ways of 
um, getting out what what their message or their vibe or everybody had different um, goals for their bands. You know, those guys were, um, you know, evangelists. Mm. And maybe in the beginning, that's kind of like what we thought we were doing. But in in reality, we realized that we we're just some dudes that like really loved playing music and playing music together and wanted to travel the world. And y- yes, we also wanted to like if art is real, if what you know, if you, if we're gonna call metalcore art, mm-hmm. which you know I I will I guess. But if if you're trying to put art out into the world, then it's got to be. Uh, I hate the term authentic now but it's got to be authentic and it's got to be real and um pure from the heart so if faith or christianity or relationship with the creator is supposed to be the most important thing in your life then that's going to come out in your art you Mm -hmm. know what i mean um so yeah that was that was what we talked about more than anything uh was that but if you follow the career of the band from when I started, John, our bass player, wrote a good majority of the lyrics. Um, and then I took over. But from the beginning of the band to the end of the band, you can see a huge change in me as a person um, and me going through a lot of ups and downs and questioning my beliefs and hell, I still don't a hundred percent know where I stand on all that stuff. But the cool thing is that Jason at face down was along for the ride and really respected what we were doing and let me be honest instead of just having to put out this record that, you know, was Lord, I lift your name on high Mm. or, you know, praise be to God, you know, like it was me fighting inside with a lot of questions and emotions and Jason saying, dude, go for it. And, you know, if your listeners care enough, they can uh, go from the first record to the last record and really see the story of my life, to be honest. Um, But yeah, we started as a Christian band. I think (laughs) personally, you know, I, I heavily got into what you guys are doing and I noticed the big change Probably for me, I noticed the change around a marriage of heaven and hell. I noticed the change, and not in, in a negative way. It was in like, oh, wow, they've changed things heavily here. But you could see it. But a question I've got with that time, you know, looking back, and it is a difficult question to ask without sounding negative, but do you think looking back on the band's career, labeling yourself or having been labeled a faith-based band could have possibly held you back and I don't mean that in a very negative way because it does sound a bit negative but what I mean is do you think some people looked at the band and went hey this isn't bad and then someone goes do you know they're Christian metal and then they go yeah okay not for me <laughs> I guess there's two ways to think about it really and and one is a blessing and one is a curse to have that title um first answer like to agree with kind of what you're saying if we were still a band right now in 2019 trying to push our career forward, it would be a huge, you know, scarlet letter on Mm. us and nobody would want to touch us. And if you look at all the 
look at how all the Christian bands, like Christian music, like Christian metalcore or whatever was huge for a minute. And now there's like three, there's like three of those bands left um, because it's just, it's taboo. It's uncool. It like all the bands that are Christian bands, most of them are claiming to not be a Christian band or like, you know, I don't know if you can cuss on here, but saying fuck in their songs or something. Yeah, you, so you that can, way that you can say fuck as much as you want. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Th- that way that they can, you know, they can stick it to the man and show everybody that they're not a Christian band anymore and get the shock factor, which, you know, the fuck word is not shocking, mm. but, but that's what they want to do. So cool. Whatever. Um, but so yes, if we are still trying to do it right now, I think saying that we are a Christian band would kill us. But, I will say, in 2006, being a Christian metalcore band was about the coolest thing you could ever do in your life, man. It like was, it yeah. was getting so huge. Like there was so it was, it was so easy to get shows and tour and, uh, you know, you might have one or two dudes in the crowd that would, uh, you know, heckle you or something for giving your Jesus talk. But for the most part, Christian metal and Christian hardcore became respected for about 10 years. And it was like something to be dealt with. Like we were Christian bands were giving secular bands a run for their money and putting out really good, technical, heavy, catchy music that was selling. I mean, we weren't a plea wasn't, but there were Christian bands who have Christian metal bands who have sold hundreds of thousands of records millions of records if you put together their whole catalog and that's crazy and like i when you asked me to do this podcast uh you know i checked out and listened to a couple of your podcasts and um i listened to the one with bruce mm. from living sack and uh which i i loved that band growing up and um it was it's crazy they're one of the first heavy bands i ever saw and then now i'm a peer with Bruce and I worked with him for years at a screen printing company. And I, I won't say like we're friends, but you know, I see that dude and we'll give each other a hug kind of thing. Um, so it's crazy to think that, you know, as a kid, I thought that their band was, you know, really something special. And in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that big when they were first starting out, but they, like y'all were talking about on your, on your podcast is they paved a road Bands like that paved a road for bands like mine to be successful. And, you know, I, for 10 years, traveled the world in a band that, you know, played heavy breakdowns and somehow made enough money doing that to not have a job for 10 years of my life. And that's crazy. And it's all it's all on the the backs of those guys like you know, Bruce and Dan from Zayo and all these, you know, Christian heavy bands that it was taboo when they started. Um, and then somehow they made it okay for us for about 10 years. And now it's taboo again. So it's, in about another 10 years, it'd be cool again, probably. Yeah, probably. It, it is a bit weird how, um, you know, it went through that phase. But I also think it's a bit weird. You know, I caught what you said in there about, a plea never quite selling that much. Um, I'm a bit confused why. I don't know 
Okay, this is without blowing smoke up your ass, but I think in some ways what you guys were doing musically was a little bit left of center. You guys were doing the metalcore stuff, but in very, very much you were also bringing in kind of the progressive sound before progressive had really hit its peak. Um, you were bringing in that Meshuggah element, you know, a bit of gent, if you want to call it. Do you think there's a reason why you guys didn't quite take off because if you actually look over the albums there are some fucking sexy jams on those tunes um depravity (laughs) depravity is an excellent excellent album the fact that that probably didn't skyrocket i'm shocked so what i'm saying is why do you think you guys weren't shifting the amount of records that other bands on face down were um I don't, you know, the thing about music um, that is crazy, our drummer Aaron used to say this all the time, trying to explain things, is like, if you want to be a doctor, all you got to do is go to school and make the grades and be good at what you're doing. And you can be a doctor if you want to be a lawyer or a plumber or whatever the profession is. All you got to do is take the steps and you will be a successful at that thing for the most part you know there's there's things that come into play with uh, opening your own business and failing and those kind of things but basically what i'm saying is you can get from a to z by following all the steps but like art or music or being an actor it's not it's not that plain and simple you know and i i don't know the the makeup of the chemistry or the equation or whatever it is but you know, there's things, you know, uh, I think a good bit of it had to do probably with image. Uh, we didn't take ourselves very seriously and everything was a joke to us outside of the music. Music was very much uh, real, important to us and we're very honest and tried to have integrity in our art. But as far as marketing and the way it was being thrown out there. Um, everything was a joke. If you watch all our videos, if mm. you look at, you know, we probably had a thousand t-shirt designs over the years. If you look at 90% of them, they had literal like pictures of poop on them or that <laughs> kind of stuff, you know, like it. Um, so maybe if we played our cards a little differently in, in marketing and like the elephant in the room is me being a fat guy. Um, which, you know, I'm a hundred percent okay with me being, why is that bad? That's the thing, you know, uh, what's crazy is in 2019, I don't think that's a thing. And I don't think it matters if you, if you look at some crazy successful artists now, uh, image is different and, um, you know, body shaming is different and, uh, look at like the Alabama shakes, which is totally different style of music, but, um, that lady that sings for their band is not um, a pop star the way a pop star is supposed to look, mm. but they're a great, you know, soul rock band that's gotten really uh, massive in, in what they do. Um, but if you go back 10 years ago, it was way less frowned, or it was way more frowned upon to not be attractive, to not be fit. Um, that's just a part of it because, like, sex sales. And music is sexy, and uh, you want to have people up there on stage 
that people, that kids want to be, and nobody wants to be some overweight, fat, bald dude. But the reality is there's some fat, overweight, bald dudes in the crowd that are dreaming of being on a stage. Um, so, you know, there's somebody up there for everybody. But, I, you know, I think that that really had something to do with it was was my weight. I, you know, I won't say names or, or put down any labels or anything like that. But there was management and there was labels that uh, weren't interested because of my weight, which is oh, fine wow. and totally cool. Jason didn't give a shit about it. And, um, so I think, you know, image was a lot and my weight was a lot. And, um, we were doing some stuff that was left to center, but if you, I, I can say these things now cause we're pretty far removed of it. And if I said these things while we were banned, everybody would think I was a cocky asshole, but like we were doing some cool stuff mm-hmm. and, Bands started ripping us off. Not that we weren't ripping off other bands. We ripped off Meshuggah all the time. And all the bands were ripping off Meshuggah. But, like, I just, I, I'm not going to, but I could name bands that came behind us that were doing what we were doing and getting more successful at it, um, which is cool. It's cool to think that uh, I did anything that influenced somebody else to then be more successful than us. And they're influencing kids all around the world because that's all it's really about. It's just relationships and influencing people in a positive manner, really. Well, I so, I, uh, I loved the fact that you guys were <laughs> so funny. I love the fact that you didn't take yourself seriously. Like when I post this up online, I'm going to put some links up for a couple of the videos you guys did. I remember when those videos dropped. I think Malevance was one of them. The one where you guys film your own music video was about how to make a music video. Um, That was what part of probably what drew me in, apart from the music itself. It was the fact that you guys, it was around this time where everyone was so serious. It was like, this is a music. We put on tough faces and we stare at the camera in mean ways. And there's these bunch of guys who are just having fun with it. Um, and I remember a lot of your merch, like you said, it had the poop on it or it had your face on it. I remember a lot of the merch had your face on it. Um, and I think it also was refreshing at that time when you were saying that image was everything, that there was a dude that was an everyday dude because a lot of those bands that, yeah, everyone was fit or looked a certain way, but I think it's something that now we understand is that obtaining that perfect body even for a male is pretty hard to do so seeing an everyday joe on stage whether he was fat or not whether he's bald or not kind of made me feel comfortable in myself and the music i mean that's just me speaking though yeah it kind of goes back to the nirvana thing for me you know like all this is in cycles so in like the early 90s um, you know, in the eight, late 80s, it was all glam and it was all like fashion and everybody looked beautiful. Richard Marks, the dudes from uh, Motley Crue, mm. you know, like all these beautiful people. And then uh, Nirvana comes out and Pearl Jam comes out and uh, Alice in Chains comes out and all these bands that are just normal, ratty looking dudes that are wearing the clothes that they woke up in from the party the night before and like that got okay and it got okay to be um less you know attractive or desirable or whatever you want to say and then 
somehow through the years of MTV and MTV and TRL and TRL, then everybody's got to be Britney Spears and everybody's got to be uh, Justin Timberlake. And I'm not saying stylistically, but everybody's, you know, got to be this um, pretty pack package. Yeah, pretty. And that that bleeds on into everything. It bleeds out into every style of music. You know, then you got Azalea Dying where Tim is up there and he's super buff and super fit and looks good and plays the part. And every style of music kind of has that. Um, so we, you know, we come out four or five, six years later than the height of like TRL. So that's still um, influencing the scene that we're in, you know. And then now you get to, you get to now and it's it's not apparent. It doesn't really matter what you look like. And it will keep cycling. It will keep, mm. you know, Instagram and, um, you know, all these influencers and super hot chicks that are taking pictures. And uh, it's the new TRL. It's the new Britney Spears. And I'm just rambling here. But I, th- I think it just keeps going in cycles. And maybe, you know, Either we came out at a really good time because it was really, really good for Christian metal and we only got the success we got because of that. Or you could look at it that, man, we came out in a really bad time because that was the time frame where it wasn't cool to be fat or something. You know, (laughs) you could look, you could spin it any way you want, but um, we're stoked with what happened. You know, I would, I would love to like, be still be a career band right now instead of going to work tomorrow on Monday morning. Um, but the reality is we didn't make it to that, but we did. I've seen like, you know, I can't even count how many countries, like 20 countries or something. And I never thought that that was going to happen when I was 13 and I picked up a drumstick for the first time, you know? Yeah, and looking, you know, going into a bit of the the career you guys had, um, you know, you guys had a critique of mind and thought, and I don't know if that was really well received, but depravity kind of dropped, um, and I think it kind of surprised a few people because am I right in thinking that was the album that first got you over to um, other parts of the world outside America? Yeah, for sure. Uh, critique was it didn't get any success because we it's it, it we got out of it what we put into it. I think we just threw a bunch of jumbled riffs together. We didn't really know what we wanted to be as a band. Uh, when I joined the band, the guys were uh, quite a bit more metallic and really loved uh, melody and things like Judas Priest and. Iron Maiden and those kind of uh, super riff-driven bands. Um, and so we were trying to do that and trying to figure out how that made sense in the realm of heavy, heavy music. And uh, so that first record and the first couple of like EPs and stuff just were a big soup or a big chili of music, just throwing everything we could into a crock pot and seeing what came out. And Depravity was the first record that we really focused on what we wanted the outcome to be or the, the you know, the, the finished product um, as opposed to just throwing and seeing what sticks at the wall. We, we went into it saying, Hey, we want to be heavier. We want to be groovier. We still want to have the melodic parts of the super high, you know, 
dweedly guitar riff things, but we want to um, just be more aggressive with it. So we took quite a bit of time to write that record and um, get away from the world and uh, lock ourselves up in a hole, you know, and write that one. And um, I don't know why Jason, uh, you know, decided to do a second record with us after the first one, because I feel like we kind of wasted his money on that first record. And, but um, he was willing to give us another shot, you know, and even sent us to, at the time, Joey Sturgis was mm. the hottest thing in metalcore, you know, um, and we got a shot to go record with him which was cool, which is funny to think about how he was super hot shit, but he was, it was just a garage, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. But, um, we got to go there and he helped us kind of hone our sound and what we were trying to do. Um, and now when I listen to that record, it, it sounds pretty dated and it sounds exactly like 2009. Um, and I hate that now, but in 2009, that record sounded like, you know, as good as it can get for metalcore. Cause that's the, that is the sterile record that everybody wanted was those perfect drum tones and perfect guitar tone. And, um, it was cool. It was cool that we got to break into that market with that record. And yeah, to answer your question, that's the first one that like anybody cared about us enough to start throwing some attention our way. So we got to go outside and do some, some stuff in Europe and uh, Canada, of course. And I don't think it was till after marriage came out that we got over into Australia and New Zealand. So but, do you, were you guys consciously then, you know, cause a marriage of heaven and hell was in some ways similar, but in some ways not. So, you know, you're saying that the depravity was kind of, what was, you know, well-received as in sound style, you know, that kind of recording elements. So when you went into the marriage, was you guys making a conscious effort to kind of maintain some of that but distance yourself from that? Or was there no real care? It was just like, let's just do what we're doing and let's see what happens. Um, yeah, from depravity on, so depravity, marriage, and, and the last record, the life, um, we, we just had a goal with each record. We went, um, so when marriage came out, we wanted to keep doing what we were doing depravity, you know, getting, um, heavier and more groovy, but taking it to the next level. And we kind of shed off some of the melodic stuff that we were doing in the beginning on marriage and um marriage was a really uh heavy record lyrically uh kind of dark um the world that we were in at the time you know do, like we were talking about how christian music got so big and christian metal was like massive well it turns out that there was just a price tag on on christianity you know and everybody's selling it for the highest price and we were a part of that world and it felt gross and it felt um, icky, you know. Mm. So like that record was uh, quite a bit. I mean, it was about the um, the marketing and the, uh, uh, the selling of Christianity and faith. 
And so with it being such an angry record, lyrically, we knew going into that record, that's what we were going to write the lyrics about. And that, that was what I wanted to, the story I wanted to tell and that the guys wanted to tell. Um, you got to try to write some pretty heavy shit to go along with that. You know, like you want the music to match uh, whatever the the lyrics are. Um, so it just got heavier. You know, every record kind of got darker. Um, and every record we put out, if you pay attention from the beginning to the end, we tuned a step and a half lower than the record previously. So every record just kept getting heavier and um, just trying to uh, outdo ourselves from the previous one, I guess, and to see what we could do throwing that new aspect into the band. It also felt like the first two, um, Depravity and The Marriage, were were pushed by Face Down. And what I mean is Face Down were heavily marketing it. Um, it felt like if you were paying attention to the label, because I was one of those people that paid attention to labels, so um, you, you knew that those albums were coming out. But for me, it felt like, you know, your last album... The life and death of a plea of a purging um, felt like it wasn't really given out there. Felt like, you know, unless you were really paying attention um, from an outside, it looked like it wasn't pushed. Um, and then the album kind of came out, and then suddenly you guys announced not long after, might have been a year, I think it might have been less, that, um, you know, we're going to do one last tour and we're going to disband, and, and the tour is called Quit Your Band, Get a Real Job. Um, what, what happened during this period for you as a band? Because obviously some big things have shifted for you to suddenly, you know, in the midst of doing it all, decide to hang up your, your cords and give it a, give it a rest. Um, well, to touch on the, like the fact that it wasn't pushed as much as the first couple records, um, I don't know. I don't know if it wasn't pushed as much. I, there's two ways of thinking about it. Is one that over the you know few years that um, those records came out, the industry changed so much in such a short period, and like print uh, magazines and print um, promotion was dying. I mean, it's still there, but it's it's way less. Uh, important to a band than it, than it was, you know, 10 years ago. And um, streaming was getting so big and selling CDs was, was you know, almost non-existent. So those last couple of years of us being a band, for sure, I'm sure Face Down was trying to figure out how to navigate um, that change. And our band was always trying to figure out how to, navigate um through that and to figure out how to make enough money on a shoestring budget for us to all to continue living um because it was never really about like making copious amounts of money because we knew that wasn't a thing but it was about um managing the money that we did make correctly so that we could keep going and um you know not struggle too hard um, but I think over the last couple years of the band, everybody was kind of just 
moving on in different directions. I mean, what's really cool is uh, the four dudes that ended the bands uh, were there the whole time. You know, I wasn't, I won't say I'm an original member because there was uh, another dude singing for the band before I started as a local band. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm an original member. Like, I came in when we started touring and we did the band for about 10 years with me or it was more like seven years or something, but, um, sorry, lost my train of thought, but, um, we, everybody was just kind of moving on in different directions, different, you know, relationships. Every guy had a girlfriend or a wife, you know, John had gotten married, I think while we were still a band and, uh, it's hard to get with every tour. Cause we toured more than most, um, if you look at our first couple years of touring, we toured over 300 days a year, which is insane. And I, I would put over our short period of a band time of being a band, we probably played more shows during those years than anybody. Um, but that was the only way to continue making money, making enough money to keep going was just to keep playing shows. Cause if you're off the road and you're at home, and you're not bringing any money, then you got to figure out how to go get a job. Mm. And it's not like any of us didn't want to work out, you know, I'll work all day long, but it was, you know, if we're going to be a hundred percent about this band and try to put the best art out that we can, we were all or nothing. So we we're only focused on that and not working outside of that. Um, so anyway, you know, the more and more and more and more that you're touring, the more that you miss your girlfriend or your wife, or you start thinking about how this tiny one bedroom apartment, like me and my girlfriend at the time, were living in a 400 square foot apartment, which, you know, I love her to death. But like after a couple of years, that gets pretty heavy. And you start mm. thinking, man, the only way that we can afford to not live in this 400 square foot apartment is if I get a real job or our band becomes the Foo Fighters, you know? Um, so it just hit, you know, we were all still enjoying it and, uh, really good friends all the way through the life and death, uh, record cycle. But we didn't put that record out knowing that it was going to be our last record, but it was, it was definitely in the back of all of our minds that, you know, that we had already finished our contract with the marriage of heaven and hell. And Jason offered us another record um, so we did the live and we could have kept doing that. I mean, Jason's there's bands that he still does that for right now that he just keeps putting out records, you know, cause he's got a relationship with them and he loves them and they might not sell the most money ever, but as long as they recoup, he's going to keep putting their records out and we could keep doing that. But all of us were kind of just, um, getting road worn. I guess, mm. and tired of being on the road. I probably could have went longer than anybody because I just, you know, I love it. And um, I was having good days and bad days for sure, but I'd rather still live in a 15-passenger van than have to go to work every day. But uh, Aaron, me and Aaron went out to eat lunch one day. He's our drummer. And he was like, hey, man, I think I'm done. You guys can decide what you want to do. And I was like, well, hell, man, if you're done, we're all done. You know, one for all, all for one kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
we had lost a couple guitar players through the years, but the core four were still there. And if one of one of us left, it was like all of us were leaving. So we got back in the van. We were on tour. Um, we got back in the van, and I said, "Aaron just quit the band, so we're breaking up." And everybody was just like, "Okay." It wasn't weird. It wasn't like this crazy dramatic thing. Everybody knew it was going to happen. Um, we just had to figure out the logistics of it because we already had an Australian tour. We decided that we were breaking up before we came and did that Australian tour. Oof. I don't know if you saw us on that yeah, or not. Yeah, but Yeah. So we were trying not to let anybody know because, like, what if the guy that booked us and brought us over to Australia and the dude that brought us over to New Zealand, what if they decided they didn't want to bring us because they didn't want to put money into a band that was breaking up or something, you know? So we just kind of kept a secret for a while. And then when we got back to America, we decided, okay, it's time to, um, time to let everybody know and do some final shows, you know? And, you know, in any way, you know, you said you, you still, you know, you would have loved to keep doing it, but in any way, is there a sense of um, anger and resentment to the industry? Because in many ways, the industry is very hard to make or break. As you said, like, to, to keep going at it, to be able to live life away from the band, you need to become the level of Foo Fighters. Then throw in the fact that the industry was changing during that time. So in any way, did you think over the years of, like, you know, damn it, if it wasn't for how shitty some things were with the industry and with how fickle the market could be, I could still be doing this. I did, you know, do you know what I'm kind of saying or asking? For sure. And like in my head, uh, for sure, I think those thoughts sometimes. Um, but I, I try to live in a very self-aware reality, mm -hmm. you know, and not blame the universe or others for my problems or my shortcomings or whatever. Um, so I don't know, you know, maybe if we would have just kept going and kept trying and kept pushing uphill, uh, we might be one of those two or three bands that still exist right now that are doing well, you know, like look at August Burns Red. Mm -hmm. They're still a faith-based band that, aren't ashamed of mentioning that and um are they're a career band look at under oath they came back and are bigger than they ever were so there's still room for that um the only thing now i think we would have we would have definitely had to veer out of out of the faith-based um music just because of lyrically i went somewhere else and um don't know where I'm at with all that. And we are always about just being honest and having integrity. So I wouldn't want to keep putting records out, you know, under the umbrella of being like a Christian band and maybe not actually being a Christian band or whatever that means. Yeah. Well, that shows, um, so that shows integrity though. That shows a sense of <laughs> integrity. I think, um, I think there would be people, and, you know, it's negative, but it is honest that there is people that, despite in their heart knowing that things are changing or things are different, they'd still go out there and probably push it for a marketing sense. For sure. And it's, you know, who's to say if, like, Blake and I, Blake play guitar and play, um, 
we play with the idea of playing music here and there. We have a couple of different ideas of um, bands that we always talk about. But I mean, me and him hang out two or three times a week, and we always talk about this, but we never do it because adulthood gets in the way and uh, paying bills get in the way of actually spending time doing anything. But we talk about playing music and about putting some music out. Um and with all that being said, you know, if Jason, if Face Down were to come to us and say, hey, man, like, we're interested in putting out the music that you're doing, and they were okay with it not having any, um, you know, glaze of Christianity or anything like that, and they just knew it is what it is, um, I'm not saying that I wouldn't ever do anything with Face Down because I love working with Jason. Um, but like, I just don't want to put anything out that it is marketed as in as something it's not. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Because um, I want people to respect what we're doing. Well, one last thing with the career before we get into a couple of things to wrap up is, um, you know, you look out now and there's a lot of bands doing these kind of anniversary tours or anniversary shows so if you look at it you know next year is the 10-year anniversary of the marriage you know that kind of stuff is it ever something you guys would do or is it maybe not something that you'd think would be a good idea you know do you think you could go out and do a run of you know 20 shows that are sell just the marriage back to front kind of played live I really, really doubt it. Like, it would probably never happen. But we also, when we played our last show in 2012, I think it was, we said we would never, ever, 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 ever play another show again, ever again. Um, and then we ended up in 2017 playing Face Down Fest, the 20-year uh, anniversary of Face Down, um, because... Jason asked us to play and at first we said no and then we just ended up doing it because we're a part of that alumni and it were uh, a decent part of that label's history, you know, and it just felt right to go do it. And then we did it and it was very lackluster. We fly out to California and there's a whole lot of stuff involved with how uh, John was there with us and then... Um, Long story short, his wife went into labor like nope. a month and a half or two months early, and um, he had to fly back home the night before. We went out there, we rented a, a rehearsal spot, practiced for a week, and then Wendy goes into labor, and John needed to fly back, which we're all very much in support of. And uh, the truck that we're driving him to the airport and broke down on the side of the freeway Ugh. and had to call a, an Uber driver on the side of the freeway to drive him to the airport and all this crazy stuff. So John gets home. The baby is fine. Um, somehow they kept the baby inside of her for another month and a half or something. And then, <laughs> and then they had the baby. I don't know all the technical stuff, but that, kid is uh healthy and beautiful and awesome and it's father's day today and john's a father and that's cool um but john wasn't able to play the show with us so that was a whole nother thing but we played and it was very lackluster and it just seems like kids didn't really care that much 
and you live in this fantasy that like if you come back and you do this reunion, it'll be huge and everybody will lose their brains because once a week you get a message on Instagram or Twitter that says, I loved your band, please come back. And you let that build up and you think that like your popularity still exists. But the reality is nobody really cares. Um, so that probably means that we'll never do that whole reunion stuff again, ever. But you can't ever say no, you know, because something crazy might happen. What if what if next year in 10-year reunion, um, we find out that one of the dudes in Meshuggah loved our band and gives us Ooh. a call and says, hey, we want you to come do 20 dates with us and we'll pay you a thousand bucks a night or whatever, you know, like <laughs> anything crazy could happen. Um, but it's not going to happen, you know, so that we'll probably never, ever, ever, ever play those songs again with each other. But, you know, there's tons of YouTube videos where you can watch us, uh, mess them up over and over. <laughs> well, I think if anyone's listening, if you've got, if you've got Meshuggah's email address, um, why don't you shoot them a Dropbox of, um, um, the marriage, and then um, let's get these guys on some sugar dates. It, 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 you know, it's possible. We could do it. Um, I don't know if they'll answer the email, though. I don't know. Yeah, probably Maybe. not. Maybe. Maybe not. Um, one last question before we wrap things up is, you know, we, we've talked about how the band came to an end and stuff, and you mentioned earlier that you worked with Bruce for a bit um, from Living Sacrifice doing merch, but... You know, how do you cut your teeth nowadays to bring in the uh, the money, as they say? Man, I when the band ended, I had no no fallback. I didn't care about anything but playing music for you know all those years. So I didn't plan ahead. I didn't never ended up going back to college like I said I was going to. I never learned a skill or a trade or anything. The only thing I really got for me is I had a decent personality and a really good work ethic. Um, so I've bounced around from all kinds of different jobs um, since the band. But currently, I guess is what I'm doing right now might be the closest thing to a career I've had since the band is uh, I work behind the scenes in music at this point in uh, live production. So I work for a staging company that we, the stages that bands are actually standing on and rocking on, you know, like, um, we provide stages, risers, custom um, touring packages. So anything from Taylor Swift and Zach Brown Band and these huge country artists, because we're located in Nashville, um, any of these huge touring acts, uh, we provide all their stage and they travel around the country and uh, with, you know, 20 semi-trailers and three of those semi-trailers are full of our stage gear. And they and there's a guy that goes and sets them up every day, you know. Um, so I work for a company that provides that stuff. We do a lot of custom stages. We do everything down to like little um, medical conferences that need like a eight foot by 16 foot wide stage, you know. Um, so some of it's glamorous and cool and some of it's just everyday bullshit. Um, but I've had some really cool opportunities now that I've been doing this for a few years and I've, uh, did some arena touring, uh, went out with panic at the disco about a year ago to, um, be their stage carpenter and set, set up a stage every day and 
Um, it's cool to see that whole world because that's a crazy different world than anything I ever did professionally playing music. Um, but, you know, it's way less um, glamorous and you're just out there doing some grunt work, really. Sounds but cool, at the moment, man. it's cool, man. It's neat to see like the shop that I work in, uh, you know, ground up. We build every from the metal and the wood and. Uh, you know, it's just, a, there's a draftsman and there's an idea and they draft it and we fabricate it all the way into the gear that Taylor Swift is sweating on every night. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's cool and it's neat to think about, um, I try to, I try to think the positive of things cause I get pretty negative. I'm a negative dude, but, um, through the cool thing to think about is there's some kid <laughs> going to, um, I don't know. I'll just keep using Taylor Swift as an example. I don't even think we do work with her, but let's say Florida Georgia line. That's a country band, right? Hmm. There's some 15 year old kid that is going to this arena to see Florida Georgia line or lady Annabellum or something like that. Um, and they have the best night of their life. They're seeing their favorite bands. Um, and if you trickle it all the way down to me, um, I had something to do with this kid having the best night of their life and a life-changing experience that made them decide that they want to be a singer or they want to be an artist or they want to do better at school so that they can become a draftsman and design things. You know, Um the reality is I just do really hard manual labor. Uh, but if you spin it and you think about it like that, then you're doing something kind of special. Oh, I love that. Yes. <coughs> yes. Um, you, you still riding a bike as well? What are you riding at the moment? Uh, yeah, I have a Harley Sportster that's been Ooh. chopped in half and welded a, a hardtail frame, you know, hardtail section on the back of the frame. So it's just, you know, ground up, um, custom chopper. I'm into the whole chopper thing. I wish I made more money and could afford to build vintage Harleys. That's the stuff I'm really into. But, uh, you know, money comes with time, I guess. So uh, maybe if we do another one of these one day down the road, I'll be riding an even cooler motorcycle. Yeah, you just got your sexy ass still on a sexy bike, though. That's all that matters. That is still important. What? What is cool is <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of money made in plea, but there was enough for us to all live very, very, very modest. But we went to Australia and did a tour there and expected to lose a lot of money. But we actually made quite a bit of money. And we came back from Australia with money in our pockets and I bought a Harley. Yay. And it was the coolest fucking thing that ever happened that I, so I'm, you know, some 13 year old fat kid that loves Nirvana. That's got no, um, direction in life. And somehow 10, 15 years, 20 years later, whatever, I am in a band that travels to Australia, which, you know, if you're Australian listeners, don't think that's that crazy. But that's all the way around the world. Mm -hmm. I'm from some small little town that 400 people live in. I end up in Australia where people are paying to see my band play. 
and stage diving off the stage and singing the words. And I made enough money to do that to come all the way back to America and buy a Harley Davidson. That's the coolest fucking thing of all time, I think. I think that's I think that shows the power of Australia and the power of yeah. just how amazing us Aussies and all the Aussies listening, fuck yes. We helped Andy get his yeah. bike. I think I think we should give ourselves a pat on the back. And if you didn't go to the show then, you know, you missed out because you could have also helped him get a good helmet. So it's your fault he didn't get a helmet. Yeah. He's riding around with no helmet, just a bald head. Fuckers. Um just a bald head. Just a bald head, but a sexy ass. Um Andy Let's kick into gear into the last segment, which is called Pick Your Poison. Um, I'm going to have a bit of fun with this. We give you two options. We're just going to find out what makes you tick. Like when push comes to shove, what would you pick if you only had two options? All right? All right. Some are easy, some are hard. Um, We're going to start off with, would you rather a pizza or a burger? Pizza. Would you rather chicken or beef? Oh, that's hard. I'll say chicken. Would you rather Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway? Now, you're in Tennessee, so I don't know if you get them. Uh, We have more Chinese food here than Indian food. Uh, If it's takeaway and I'm getting it at my house, then I'll say Chinese. But if I can go to the restaurant and they have a buffet, then the Indian buffet is probably my favorite thing to fuck with ever. So good. Uh, would you rather a beer or a whiskey? Whiskey. Would you rather cook at home or dine out? Uh, the fiscal responsibility in me says uh, dine at home, but the reality is I'd rather go out. Uh, would you rather see a movie at the cinema or would you rather at the comfort of your home on the couch? At home on the couch. Uh, Beach or snow? Beach. Uh, Cat or dog? I like dogs more, but we have a cat. Harley or Triumph? Harley for sure. Batman or Superman? Batman. Terminator or Predator? Terminator. I'll be back, dude. Uh, South Park or Simpsons? Uh, Simpsons. Slayer or Pantera? That's hard. I'll say Pantera. Uh, corn or Limp Biscuit? Uh, corn. Corn, yeah. Metallica or Megadeth? Metallica, Black Album, and Back. Anything after the Black Album, I never really gave a shit about. Yeah, pretty much the same for me. Um, I didn't mind Load, though, from memory. I think I was a young Yeah, teenager. Load and Reload like had some songs mm. that were decent. Yeah, but they weren't, those albums weren't like classics, like, like you said, from Black and Back. Um, yeah. Van Halen or Motley Crue? Oh, man, I don't like either. Oh, man. <laughs> but I did watch that new Motley Crue movie on oh, Netflix. The, the, it was entertaining. The Dirt. Yeah. Yeah. I it, I felt a bit let down because have you, have you read the book? No. Okay, the book is really in-depth and funny and entertaining and they really do some you know full-on things and then they watch you watch the movie and it felt a bit watered down. It felt too uh PG. 
Um, and also, I didn't like the acting. I think everyone wasn't really an actor. I was like, uh, this is poor acting. Yeah. Um, I felt that vibe. I, I felt like the Tommy Lee kid was really goofy. Oh, Machine Gun actor. Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, all right, last couple. Would you rather perform with stage dives going on around you or with mic grabs going on in front of you? Oh, God, I love stage dives. And nobody ever sang along to our band. So maybe if people did that, I would have a different feeling about it. But since nobody ever sang along to our songs, I love seeing stage dives. If you go to a show, would you rather watch it from in the center of the mosh pit or up the back near the sound desk? Oh, I'm in the back. Yeah, I'm too old for that shit now. Uh, would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record for the rest of your life? I hate recording, so tour. And the last one, would you prefer to own an album on CD, vinyl, or streamed on your phone? The romantic in me says vinyl. Right behind me, I got a decent little vinyl collection. But the realist is the fact that you can listen to any song in the entire world anywhere in the world at any time is so amazing and it's a blessing that i would have never thought i'd have when i was you know getting into music it's amazing what we can do nowadays with the accessibility to music um andy you're an absolute legend thank you so much dude that was a lot of fun really in depth and it flowed and before i knew it i looked at the time and i was like Oh, oh, better wrap things up. Um, so I really, really appreciate it, man. Cool. Thanks, dude. In the very beginning, I kept getting like stuck inside my brain and couldn't make <laughs> sense of the crap I was trying to say, which I, you know, I do that all the time. I just ramble. So the second half probably feels better and more smooth than the beginning. But it's like watching a TV show. And the first season isn't that great, but if you can get through to the second season, you know it's going to be all right. Yeah, it pays off. It's. I felt you were fine at the start. You know, I, I like, um, I like people that can go on tangents, whether you call that rambling or not. Um, I like that because you have the ability to talk without me having to guide you the whole time, um, and that. That's what made it enjoyable for me. And then when it got near the end, I saw the time and I was like, probably should let this dude get back to his Sunday evening you know, relaxation on the couch. Um, so I, I had a lot of fun and also appreciate it because it will um, give the listeners a chance because I've got a couple of mates who are fans of you guys because I told them about you guys back in the day. So they're going to go crazy when they find out we had you on the show. But then also I think we'll give some people a chance to discover you guys who maybe didn't. So I think it was really awesome. Cool, man. Thanks for the love. I, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's humbling when, you know, my reality now is going and working, you know, 60, sometimes 70 hours a week at a job. Um, that's, that's very thankless to be honest, but you know, um, so it's humbling and just feels really good to know that anybody still cares about anything that I did 10 years ago, you know? Mm. Um, it, it's a good feeling. It makes you feel great. So uh, I appreciate it. 
Well, as you said about Australia helping you get that bike, Aussies, Aussies fucking love a plea for purging. So um, we love you. I love you. Um, you're an absolute legend, dude. Really appreciate it. Thanks, dude. It was a great time. Thanks for having me. Legend, Andy. I'll speak to you soon. See ya. Bye. See ya, buddy.
So that was my chat with Andy from A Plea for Purging. And at the end there, you heard the band's song, The Life, which is off their album, The Life and Death of A Plea for Purging. You also heard The Fall, which is from their album, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And lastly, you also heard their song, Malevance, which is from their album, Depravity. This is a part of the show where... If you enjoyed those songs, if you enjoyed that chat with Andy, now is your time to get deep into this discography. So many great albums, some absolutely kick-ass tunes. This band were doing something that a lot of bands do now, and they were doing it before it became a thing. Get into this band, support this band. I know they're not touring anymore, I know they're not playing anymore, but get into this. Get online, get to eBay, maybe even get down to your record store if you have one and delve in and see if you can find one. Thank you again, Andy. Really, really appreciated you coming on the show. Meant a lot and look forward to doing a part two. Much love, much respect, much appreciated, dude. And that's it. That's The Mosh Zone, episode 75. Done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So if you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, don't forget... You can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.